Hey everyone, the Impact Investing Podcast is brought to you by Kind Wealth. Kind Wealth helps you make the most of your wealth by offering high quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long term contracts, just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. Before we get into the podcast this week, just a few reminders. One, um, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you've been enjoying it. Um, it really would mean the world to me. I thank you in advance. Also, um, two great events are coming up that I wanted to mention. First is Mars Discovery District's uh, Impact Week. Join thousands of innovators from across the globe in deep discussion on the most pressing technology challenges of our time. Uncover the models, trends, and strategies that are helping to build a better, more sustainable future. It's happening November 30th to December 4th. You can visit impactweek.marsdd.com to register. Also, the Future of Good Summit convenes its members and impact-oriented people who are raising the bar and changing the game. The summit will equip you to work smarter in an age of massive opportunity and rapid change. Expect mind-blowing conversations and friendly peer learning. And the summit, once again, will be partnering with Brain Dates, which is all meant to help facilitate connection and learning from other participants. It's all happening November 25th and 26th. Visit futureofgoodsummit.org to register. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 22 of the Impact Investing Podcast. If there's a lesson to be learned for investors wishing to solve real social challenges, it's that we need to do less talking and more listening. We need to make space for not only a wide, diverse range of views and perspectives, but particularly for those people who have lived experience. Perhaps nowhere is the need for listening and learning more pronounced than when it comes to tackling reconciliation and the challenges faced by Indigenous communities. The vast majority of cap investment capital is held by those with very little understanding and appreciation for Indigenous ways of knowing and being. And this is problematic because those differences have a profound impact on not only how to solve the challenges Indigenous communities face, but more profoundly, what improvement actually means and looks like. In other words, we can't be true allies of any group of people if we don't understand their challenges and their desired outcomes. That's why putting capital in the hands of those who have been excluded from economic prosperity is so important, and it's why the work that my guest today does is so important. Sarah Wolf is Director of the Indigenous Innovation Initiative within Grand Challenges Canada, and her work is to provide financial support to drive innovation and social impact that is led by and or created by Indigenous peoples. In this episode, Sarah and I discuss the broader mandate of Grand Challenges Canada, the birth of the Indigenous Innovation Initiative, some of the challenges Indigenous communities face, and the forms of financial support they provide to Indigenous entrepreneurs. We also discuss Sarah's fascinating journey that led her to where she is today, including her time spent working as a midwife. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we talk about the critical importance of the various forms of non-financial support that she and her team provide. 
So Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Ed, thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I was just saying to you before the, the the podcast that this originally the idea for the podcast was I'm having really interesting conversations with people and learning about the space, and I might as well record it because I'm sure a lot of other people would like to hear this too. Um, and it it often turns out now that I know a lot of the people or, or, or have met them before, or got to know their initiatives, their work a little bit, sometimes a lot before the the, the podcast. But this one is really me exploring um, more details for the first time with you kind of real time here. So I'm excited for it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So can you give everybody an introduction to yourself, where you work and what you're working on right now? Yeah, so right now I am the director for the Indigenous Innovation Initiative at Grand Challenges Canada. So it's an innovation platform that gives seed funding, uh, usually through grants, to early stage innovators, people with great ideas to solve some of the biggest challenges um, in our society, um, people who are closest to those challenges challenges, and gives them the, the capital and the supports and the resources that they need to develop and test those ideas with the hope that some of those ideas are going to have a really big impact on our communities, uh, saving lives, improving lives, uh, generating wealth so people can get out of those cycles of dependency um, and people can and societies can thrive. And are these ideas always like for-profit businesses? So can they be nonprofits or can they be other types of structures? So it's really about supporting innovation. So sometimes it's social innovation, sometimes it's business innovation, sometimes it's, you know, any number of different kind of uh, sectors. Um, But what we're encouraging is uh, that those innovations, if they're social innovations, that's great. And if they're business innovations, like what is the social purpose behind it? So how is it impacting the the land or the people um, in those communities? If it's a, if it's a social innovation, just to kind of get some clarity, would, could that be like, can it be just simply somebody has a technology they need funding to continue to kind of research? Can it be, hey, we're a nonprofit and we have kind of a unique model for an innovative model for delivering, you know, kind of delivering social impact? Can it be any yeah. of the above? Any of the above. And really, we wanted to make it really community driven and community determined. So it was it was pretty a pretty open call for our first call around what what is Indigenous innovation and you know, innovation is typically thought of as something technological or something new, but within an Indigenous context, we we wanted to make sure that the communities knew that we also considered, you know, those old ways of knowing and doing, those traditional teachings or values or practices, um, that traditional knowledge could also be considered innovative if it's applied to this new contemporary context. Hmm. So what, is, what are those innovative ways that we're bringing those old ways back? to solve the, the challenges we, that we face right now. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, and I want to unpack that a little more, obviously, as we go. To start, can we maybe just start start by getting a bit of an introduction to Grand Challenges itself? What is it and where did it come from and what, do you, what does it do? <laughs> so uh, I'm not the best at the origin story of Grand Challenges, so I've been with the organization for just over a year now. Okay. Um, but it's been in operation for over 10 years. And uh, they started in development innovation, largely health innovation, solving some of the millennial development goals, now kind of morphed into the the SDGs, the social development goals. The idea was that they could integrate, um, they could integrate, you know, global health initiatives and innovation with business innovation. And by morphing those two together, they could solve some of the most pressing challenges in low and 
middle income uh, countries. And so that's where they started was in, in global health and develop, you know, development innovation. Um, they've also morphed into, or morphed is not maybe the right word, but they've expanded into humanitarian innovation. So they have a humanitarian grand challenge that focuses on working with uh, communities impacted by conflict. And the Indigenous Innovation Initiative started about two years ago um, and uh, started getting momentum at Grand Challenges Canada. Our primary focus right now is on working with Indigenous communities within Canada. Uh, so First Nations and Inuit Métis communities across urban, rural, remote, and northern communities. Was the, is this the first time Grand Challenge is operating domestically? I've, I've always known it best for its international work. Yeah, it's funny because they have a really high profile and are well-known kind of globally and internationally, but not well-known in Canada. When I told people I was going to Grand Challenges Canada, nobody knew who Grand Challenges Canada was. Um, from my old world, um, it was really a, a big unknown. So this is the first time they're working domestically. Of course, they've had Canadian innovators who've uh, partnered with uh, their countries and other communities, but this is the first time they're actually working within Canada. And is that is that part of kind of like a broader push to move more domestically, or is just in particular, you know, some of the you know challenges facing Indigenous communities? There's some you know parallels to. Yeah. Um, you know, work that's being done in international context. Yeah, right now, like the primary focus is on supporting the Indigenous Innovation Initiative. The The idea of Indigenous innovation, having a platform to support Indigenous innovation actually came before Grand Challenges Canada. It was, there was some work done by the Connell Foundation and mm-hmm. the National um, Association of Friendship Centres um, where they actually started going out into the community to talk about Indigenous innovation, starting to see some things emerging and percolating. And they held a couple of summits in Edmonton and, and Winnipeg um, back in 2015. And there was like a really clear call for support to, you know, to get more Indigenous innovation into the ecosystem. Um, so that's been, it's been emerging for, for quite a long time now, mm. uh, and to build it and um, build that momentum. Um, the challenge is that you need a, a large infrastructure to support an, an innovation platform. And um, so that platform didn't exist within Canada, within the Indigenous context here. And so it was actually Indigenous leaders who went to uh, Peter Singer at the time, um, to Grand Challenges Canada, um, and, you know, working with McConnell Foundation to say, let's start incubating the idea of an Indigenous innovation platform. Um and we'll start with within Grand Challenges because a lot of that infrastructure is already there. Some of those lessons learned, um, some of those best practices, and we can collaborate and learn. What best part has been is that um, we're really, you know, in this process of working to decolonize the, the, you know, innovation platform at Grand Challenges for the Indigenous community. A lot of things are really emerging that will be beneficial for the other platforms as well. So there's a real cross learning that is happening, um, making everyone better. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and just to finish off on kind of the, the Grand Challenges side, like it's a, as I understand it, there's a U.S. Grand Challenges as well. Um, there's This is the Canadian Grand Challenges. It's primarily funded, I think, by the Canadian government, but also has, I think, like his Gates Foundation and I think a couple other prominent um, supporters that, you know, that fund it, but it also, so probably has, I think it has its own kind of revenue sources. Some of the money that's being deployed are investments that have a return, but others are, are grants um, to fund these innovations in these different areas and sectors of focus. Is that just from a 10,000 foot view, largely? 
right? Large, yeah. So Grand Challenges is a there's a whole network of Grand Challenges. There's a Grand Challenges South Africa, Grand Challenges Africa, Grand Challenges India. Like so, there's a whole network of them. Um, they all op- operate independently. Yes, most of the funding that we get is from. Um, Global Affairs Canada, um, and then there's lots of strategic partnerships like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So there's a lot of kind of synergies and similarities, uh, numerous partners um, that are connected to Grand Challenges Canada. And largely it's about, you know, you know the, the capital, the, the grants to develop and test those early stage ideas, um, maybe help with some transition to scale through some kind of, you know, mixed, you know, finance models and products, um, but largely kind of getting to that them to that investment ready kind of stage with an impact first lens, like what is the impact that we can have within communities and uh, their focus in the global health or in the, the development innovation and humanitarian has been on, you know, lives saved and lives improved. The indigenous innovation part of that in terms of our kind of primary impact, um, I, it was, you know, it was my direction to really say like, I'm not. Ta- I'm not going to tell you if that's going to work or not. Like, even though I'm an indigenous person um, within this community and have a stake in it, it's really the community that has the biggest stake in it. So we're actually undergoing a process right now to ask the community what that impact we should be measuring is. Amazing. So, and I want to dig into that and unpack that further as well as we go here. Um, but just to bust a bit of jargon, like the mixed financing would be starting off with kind of grant work to test or validate an idea. And as a business then kind of needs to scale and, and particularly impact investments have a hard time, harder time, I think, securing funding through traditional funders like banks and traditional lenders and investors because the business models are unique and they're earlier stage. The idea maybe hasn't been validated before or has just been, it has less track record of, of kind of being validated. You'd be, the grant channels might be looking at Anything so for moving beyond grants, it might be kind of like below market rate type of investments or loans at low interest rates or potentially zero interest rates, that type of thing. Yes, and you're you're starting to test the limits of my you know of my knowledge around finance, and you know try not to make me look. Bad. No, no, right. we're all learning here. Your job right now is to make me look good. <laughs> but yes, my understanding is that there's like a whole blend of different kinds of yeah. finance models, which with the goal of of supporting them to get investment ready, right? So for those ones that we are supporting to transition to scale, the whole goal is to get them so that they can be investment ready and whatever that means, right? So if it is giving them kind of you know loans, we don't take an equity stake from what I understand, but like, you know, are there kind of different kinds of models of, you know, giving loans or uh, partnerships for match funds and, um, you know, low interest loans, zero interest loans. There's, I think there's any number of mixes within that. Um, And it's meeting people where they're at to support them with what they need to get to the point where they can actually, you know, go into the mainstream market. Awesome. So um, I want to dive into the into the indigenous specific um, issues, but I'd love to just maybe take a step back and talk a little bit about your journey and background and how you got to where you are now, because you've got a fascinating, even by impact investment standards, probably an atypical, <laughs> which is like really varied, you know, very few of us have a common path, but yours may be even more distinguished. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up, like where, you, where did you start and how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so... Uh, just over a year ago, um, before I started at Grand Challenges Canada, I was the managing partner at uh, a small little organization called Seventh, Seventh Generation Midwives Toronto. So I was a midwife. Uh, I'm also uh, a nurse, a registered nurse um, in Ontario, and have been working largely in healthcare for most of the last two decades, or actually more. 
quickly, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so going into social finance and impact investing is a bit of a switch from, from being a frontline healthcare provider. Um, seventh generation midwives was um, one of the first urban indigenous focused midwifery practices in Canada. Oh, wow. There are, you know, a number of them now or a growing number of them now and certainly a growing number of Indigenous midwives in Canada. Um, we started out with just myself as the only Indigenous midwife that was working in um, in Toronto at the time. Uh, a lot of Indigenous families were coming to me asking for safer space for the incorporation of, you know, culture and ceremony into their, you know, birthing experiences and asking to not go to the hospital and me trying to figure out kind of what is this about and starting to realize that, you know, their, their experience within the mainstream healthcare system was really quite distinct, but there's also this thirst for uh, a reclamation of our kind of traditional ways of knowing and doing our culture, our teachings, our ceremonies into a process as profound as having a baby. And so I grew the practice from myself and one non-Indigenous midwife who was an incredible ally and support, um, in that journey. And when I left, there were, I think, 20 midwives, uh, half of them were Indigenous. Um, we've supported like numerous Indigenous midwives across Canada to grow uh, their own practices in their own jurisdictions. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty thriving place with, I don't know, I think there was like 30 people connected at its peak um, through different social workers and uh, frontline staff and wellness workers, to birth workers, uh, midwives. Wow. Can I, this is completely off uh, the, the podcast topic, but out of my own personal interest and it may vary by, you know, kind of indigenous community from one to the next, but is it generally, um, do indigenous communities generally use midwives and, and, or, um, pursue kind of natural birth options or is it like, I'm just curious how the, you know, I mean, I, I, in most kind of Western civilizations now, just, you know, hospital births and sort of more, tra- you know, more traditional hospital births are just sort of the standard. And I still, to this day, a lot of, you know, friends uh, and family found it strange that we would use a midwife or try for a natural birth. Um, is that, I wonder whether that kind of applies in Indigenous contexts? Yes, there is a, there's a resurgence of midwifery and a, like, you know, demand for midwifery just generally within Canada, within North America. Um, and it's really largely kind of linked to the kind of the feminist movement of people like in, spe- in particular birthing people who want to take more power and control over their birthing processes. Um, in a hospital environment, it's often very medicalized and um, there's been a real kind of push away from that medicalization. Midwifery has allowed for like more of a, a process that allows for more informed choice, for more autonomy, more choice of birthplace, um, and more continuity of care provider, right? So you might recall, like, you might get to know an obstetrician during the course of a pregnancy, but then you go into the hospital and um, it's a different, you know, care provider on staff and it's a different kind of slew of nurses who are working shifts who are taking care of you. So there's not a lot of continuity in that, but with midwifery, there was a real focus on that. In an Indigenous context, um, I think for communities, it was really largely around culturally safe care and accessing care in a way that allowed for the incorporation of culture and tradition and teachings within a contemporary context. We still do, you know, check blood pressures and, you know, check urine and check, you know, for, you know, how the heart rate is doing on the baby and send people for ultrasounds and tests. Like those things are still included, but it's also allowing for families to be able to include those important traditions and ceremonies in their care. 
um, in a way that's culturally safe and meeting them where they're at, where they feel respected and, and comfortable and able to be themselves. So I think it's trying to strike that balance. In terms of an Indigenous context, midwives were actually considered the nation builders largely in most Indigenous communities because we were the ones that were bringing our most sacred gifts to the world. And so while women would be considered a life giver, it was the midwives who were helping to support that journey from the spirit world into the, into the physical world. And so they were actually revered, but also midwives are the keeper of family secrets. We know, <laughs> we know about the family lineages. We pay attention to those family lineages. And so in some communities, it was the midwife who decided what that person was going to become when they grew up, right? This person's going to be a healer. This person's going to be a teacher. This person's going to kind of support the community as a warrior this person's going to support the community as a, a medicine person like that that was what the midwife did because they knew what the strengths of the family were and they knew what the gaps were and so they could actually look at it from that seventh generation perspective wow that's so cool i love that so you that's got really me talking about my easy topic no yeah I, I yeah right all day too <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh i i could have a whole separate podcast yeah. to explore all these other kind of um interests because i could talk to you about that all day um but I find, just find it fascinating. Yeah. yeah. To loop it all back, it's, um, you know, when I was working as a midwife, one of the things that families kept asking for was space. And so we did all of this work around finding um, and getting a, a, a birth center to be funded. And so we started, so we actually you know, built the Toronto Birth Center. So our practice was were the leads on the development and implementation of the Toronto Birth Center, which is an independent freestanding birth center within Toronto is um, put out as a, as a pilot center, pilot project five years ago, six years ago by the government of Ontario, Ministry of Health. And we were the leads on that. And we got all of the midwives in Toronto, 120 midwifery um, midwives from Toronto, all of the hospitals on board to allow us to kind of lead it from an indigenous lens. And so it's the first mainstream healthcare facility that's open for anyone to use as long as you have a midwife, um, but that uses an indigenous leadership and governance framework in um, in its design. And so it's actually was designed to make care more accessible for the, the community that is most marginalized and most vulnerable and um, thereby making care more accessible for everyone. Now, what is the link? Well, so me, a midwife, I did not have the training in doing a major capital development project. So I was the lead in like in hard hat, in steel toe boots. Um, doing this major capital development project in record speed. We, we built the space at 12,100 square feet in plus in, um, I don't know, like 26 weeks or something crazy. Um, you know, going to the city about zoning, going to the city about all these different like crazy things, m- managing all these partners. And I was like, I love this. This is, this is fascinating. And I need more skills because I want to do more stuff like this, Hmm. right? Leading major projects, being like really responsible for major initiatives and bringing that lens that I had as an indigenous midwife to a different context. And so I went and did an MBA and of course no one could figure out why was this midwife doing an MBA. And it was really hard to explain that. It took a long time to get the flow of the narrative right because I didn't even fully understand. I just know, I just knew I needed more skills. And so I did this MBA uh, five years ago. And um, 
and then went back to midwifery and, um, and, and kept fighting the fight, right? Like, you know, clients need more access to culturally safe care. There's too much racism within the mainstream healthcare system. Our, our clients need more access to housing. They need more access to more care providers. We need more education in the system. We need more, um, you know, child protection kind of uh, supports. We need, we need, we need. And I recognized that the root of all of these things was poverty. And I kept getting frustrated seeing the same things over and over again at these forums. And and ultimately, I said, like, I need to go get upstream and support families to be self-sufficient so that they can have the means and the resources to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, to reach their fullest potential. And then those other things will start to resolve. And so I knew I had a set of skills um, around program management and, you know, program delivery. And I knew that I knew how to work with communities. And I had spent 20 years on the front line. So I said, I'm going to bring that to a different context. And then... It was almost like magic. The the posting for the Indigenous Innovation Initiative lead was was put on like literally in front of me, way sooner than I had expected to to leave. Um, but it just kind of magically came before me, and it ha- all happened pretty quickly. That, that that now that's my job, and I love it. Uh, that's amazing. So uh, serendipity sometimes is is pretty mind blowing. <laughs> um, so. Uh, just as a quick uh, plug, there's a have you seen? There's a great documentary uh, that for me, when I my my wife was pregnant with our first uh, daughter and exploring, wanting to explore natural birth, she had made me watch. And I'm glad it's called the Business of Being Born, um, and it just sort of talks about you know the idea of kind of hospital births and how that and how and why it became so quickly the norm when for almost all of human history, we pursued natural births uh, and it would have seemed really odd to do what we do now, which was sort of the norm anyway. Um, so that's, if anybody's interested in this topic, I found that an interesting um, uh, documentary. Um, so let's dive into, I'd love to explore, like, I, I mean, I very much realized in this podcast, we get people from a whole kind of wide range of, background, some people who are inculcated in this space and know it very well. And I don't want to sort of, I don't like to start, stay too basic for too long, but I also want to kind of meet the people who are coming into this space uh, where they are and make it as inclusive as possible for people who are just joining this, this journey. But can you talk a little bit about um, a, it kind of, for, for somebody who may be brand new, what, what it means when you say indigenous ways of knowing and being, and then in particular, how it applies in the context of entrepreneurs and maybe some of the challenges they face as entrepreneurs, especially working on innovations that are making a positive impact. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, sometimes I think it's a nuance of how we describe like what are Indigenous ways of knowing and doing. And I think it's just about recognizing that there, that there very often is a different kind of worldview around things. Um, very often in a Western context, when things are inward facing, we're outward facing. And very often when things are outward facing, we're inward facing. Um, it's kind of understanding, you know, some key kind of principles around um, like our connections to the land and how we're all interconnected. And right? so there's like, you know, one of my early teachers um, would, you know, speak regularly around Wakotuin, which is a Cree word for all my relations or how um, our kinship ties are all related. And it's not just around, um, you know, the degrees of separation between you, David, and me. Um, it would be about all of the, you know, the inter- 
your connections and how those all interplay with each other, including the, you know, the land around us, the animals around us, right? So the flyers, the swimmers, the crawlers, the, um, you know, the two-leggeds, the four-leggeds, all of us are interconnected some way and we, we can't coexist unless we kind of acknowledge and work from each other. So it's this, this worldview where we understand that all of those things are related and we learn and li- by listening, you know, to the land around us. Um, you know, a lot of our teachings are grounded in like, you know, the animals and how they interact with each other and how they interact within their families, you know, how the, the cycles of the moon kind of, kind of interconnect right now. We're in the, the raspberry moon cycle, right? We call this the raspberry moon and Anishinaabe teachings. And so how does, how does that interconnect in our world and what can we learn from it? Um, and then, yeah, just also kind of understanding it within this context of, um, the, the intergenerations, right? And so seventh generation is another kind of kind of common theme worldview that we have, which is around, you know, our actions today have their biggest impact seven generations from now. So you know, what decisions we're making, we need to think about kind of our children and our grandchildren, but like seven generations into the future, but it's also about looking back. And so looking back at, you know, the decisions that were made by our ancestors seven generations before us, not just mine, mine and yours, um, and then how that's impacted the current context that we have now. And so we have that potential for seven generations, but also what is that knowledge and that wisdom that we can take from those generations and, and push that forward? Because we do have a lot of um, things that are important that we can we can carry forward to those, those future people. So it's it's the, the ways of knowing and doing. It's not just about going back to the old ways and, you know, living off of the, off of the land exclusively and not being kind of in a contemporary context, but it's about how do we adapt those teachings and contemporize them to a current context so that we can all thrive um, and reach our fullest potential, I guess. I love that. I, I, uh, and I, I'm on a learning journey myself, which I'm, you know, continuing on. And I come from a shockingly ignorant um, you know, understanding and awareness. And quite frankly, I would just say racist, like just not having a lot of misunderstandings about it. And part of that's my own fault. Part of it, I think, is just the education system and the, you know, I think even things like, you know, the way Hollywood and the kind of Western views of, of how um, indigenous communities are portrayed. But, you know, as I've, uh, as I've gotten older for me, and I, I, I hate to, I hate to characterize because I'm still so early in my learning journey, but the, what stuck out to me is in a lot of, is exactly what you're talking about in terms of like, generally speaking, a much more like integrated view of like the, the, people and planet and everything on it are part of a, a whole. We are these sort of discrete entities that op- are completely independent of, independent of one another. And that it, there's, you know, in a much more fundamental way, a harmony that exists uh, between all of us. And so like even kind of the idea of living off the land is right. We here to extract from the land rather than we're part of this whole thing. And it's just such a, a that as a kid, I would have thought, or a young, you know, young man, I would have thought, oh, well, that just sounds so, you know, just like out there and silly. And now I just sort of realize, whoa, this is just a much more sustainable way of thinking about the world that we'd all be much better off if we thought about um, the world that way. And and I think that it is that way. <laughs> I mean, we're clearly learning and seeing the interconnections between, you know, they even think something like coronavirus, right? Like just makes you realize 
whoa, we are a lot more connected and dependent on one another and the environment than we thought, and then maybe we like to believe. Um, so I think you did a great job of describing that right now. And it always, I don't know, makes, makes me realize how much I still have to learn. Well, and I think that that's what I would love your listeners to hear as well is that, um, you know, we do have these ingrained kind of ideas about, about who Indigenous peoples are. And it's based on like, you know, the education that we got growing up and the media that we watch, right? Like what we saw on television or what we saw on the news. It's ingrained in like our understanding of what child protection is, like our healthcare system, our education system, the justice system, the police system, like all of those different pieces have told us this narrative that we have to fight really hard to now go, wait a second, these are not working. Maybe there are actually different ways of doing these things. And Indigenous peoples have a lot of traditional teachings around how to do all of those things in a different way. It's not that they're better or worse, but maybe we could actually all learn from some of those other ways um, so that everyone can start to thrive and do well. Because if there's only some people who are doing well, we know that that doesn't work within a society. Like it, you know, it becomes unsafe for even the people who are thriving to, you know, move outside of their bubble, right? If everyone's thriving, then, you know, everyone can even collectively lift themselves up more. That is the society I want to live in. Not one where some people are really not doing well, but some people are. That just doesn't sit right within kind of my context of who we are. And so for me, it's like I give my gift for whatever it's worth to, to try and support the community around me and all of the people around me, all my relations around me so that we can all thrive and be happy and support each other and, you know, reach our fullest potential. Yeah, I love that. Can you, um, so let's talk a little bit about then in the, in the context of, in, in, so, you know, the Indigenous Grand Challenges and the idea of funding innovation for, especially for kind of social impact is, is not, uh, is, you know, is a, is a model and a concept that applies to just generally speaking, social entrepreneurs. And there's lots of incubators, accelerators, grant funding, investors for that. It's growing, you know, rapidly. Talk about maybe what's distinct about it in an indigenous context. Yeah. So part of it is just, there's no other platform in Canada right now that is supporting this kind of early stage, like idea development and testing. So there are an increasing number of programs to support the kind of the social entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs, the social innovation, but that really, like, I have an idea, but right. where do you go from here? So we're kind of like the research and development for the indigenous economic development kind of landscape yeah. is how I kind of describe it to some people because there's no one actually supporting it at that stage. Yeah, but it also early, right? it can't like for a lot of the fund funders. Super early. And it's even like almost like pre friends and family yeah. kind of stage, right? Like, yeah. like <laughs> hey, what do you got? I got an idea. That's it. <laughs> I have an idea and I need some time to develop it, right? But when you work with Indigenous peoples in Canada, like, like they're, we're amongst the poorest, right? Like I looked at like the international statistics. They're, you know, we make up 5% of the world's population are just under, but we're 10% of the world's poor, right? Like half of us are poor, Mm -hmm. um, I'm really lucky. I've managed to like not be poor, but like most of the people around me are poor. I, I participated in a major population health study just within Toronto because there's very little data on when, where people are at. 
And we know Indigenous peoples are not participating in Stats Canada. That study showed us that two to four times, the, the population size, just something as simple as the population size is two to four times bigger than what Stats Canada was able to, you know, kind of to get reported on. There's lots of reasons behind that. We don't have to delve into that. But nine, almost nine out of 10 Indigenous adults within the city of Toronto, in this large study that Stats Canada has like said, yes, this is actually... You know, pretty profound. We got it published in the British Medical Journal. Um, nine out of 10 Indigenous adults live below the low income cutoff, the before tax low income cutoff, because of the number of people that they're supporting within their income and because they cannot get access to the kind of the jobs that I mean, they can't get promotions within those jobs. Um, and so if you are living within that context, when there is no friends and family money, period, like, and this is in Toronto, we replicated it in a few other places. Um, this study, but it, and if anyone wants to know about the study, it's our Health Counts Toronto study with Well Living House, which is an academic research center at St. Michael's Hospital. But the, the this idea that there's friends and family money, it just doesn't get, you know, it doesn't it doesn't jive. Like we can't even get a five thousand dollar loan from a friend, let alone like a you know twenty five fifty thousand dollar kind of loan to develop and test something. Um, but the other piece is that they're also working their butts off, right? There's probably like, if, if they're able to work, there's going to be like, they're working a couple of jobs and supporting numerous other people within their communities. And so we need to be able to give them the, the space and the time to do some development and testing um, and start these kind of pieces off. We need to be able to meet them where they're at, recognize that Indigenous communities have a lot of different moving parts within their lives, right? So there's a lot of intergenerational trauma. There's a lot of experiences of racism within communities. And so we need to be able to meet people where they're at, because if you have an adult learner who is also dealing with domestic violence or like a housing issue, like, you know, they're not going to thrive in a mainstream incubator. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work. If, if you're not talking about the healing journey that someone needs to be on because they've lived in poverty their whole life, before you start talking about how to do a cash flow, like they're going like, to dissociate, not kind of focus on it. So you need to be able to meet people where they're at. So it's not just throwing capital at them, but it's actually also creating that infrastructure of supports for them so that they can work together and they can kind of build something that's, like, that's distinctly theirs and they can go on that journey at the speed that they want to, that they're ready for, and will allow them to, you know, do that within a context of supporting each other and build their own skills and capacities in the areas that they want to, right? Like instead of like imposing, you have to do it on this kind of um, priority area, right? The, you know, Indigenous communities have gotten really good at writing proposals for whatever the government's priorities are in the moment, right? Like what are your priorities? What's the community's priorities? And how do we support them on their journey, wherever they are at, however long that takes to do that work. And then that, that person then can support their family. Think about how great that is going to be for their children. And then how are they also supporting other people within their community? How are they bringing people along that journey and sharing that knowledge that they're learning? So that's now having an impact on, you know, the people that get hired by their project or the people that um, benefit from their, their, their innovation or their project. And then how does that help support a whole community when the whole like, you know, worldview is typically around like, how much can we, you know, how much we're all related. So how do we kind of help support each other in this journey? 
And so I think that that's kind of the, the distinct thing about what we're doing. It's not just an innovation platform where we throw some capital at someone and they can develop and test an idea. It's also creating that network of support, giving them the, the, the knowledge and expertise, but also taking away some of that kind of, you know, intersectionality piece. Like, you know, I'm doing a program, like a gendered program right now. It's like, oh, it's supposed to be for Indigenous women. Well, it's like one, let's like, let's take out the, the binary part of the, the gender equation, but let's actually look at how are we meeting this person where they're at and how are we actually advancing gender equality, which is not just around having an, you know, you know, a woman or gender diverse person leave, actually how are we, you know, helping whole communities to kind of support each other in a way where it's balanced and it has nothing to do with whether you have more power or not, but actually because we, we want each other to succeed. Yeah. To me, that sounds like, um, you know, you hear it's a very, it touches on the, 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 the kind of indigenous ways of knowing being that you were talking about before, which is like, you know, a traditional Western lens would be like, well, why, why not just fund somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't have, you know, we don't have to do as much work to, you know, meet them where they're at and they're further along, you know, they can more quickly implement their idea and we can get this deployed and this idea launched. And if you prize speed and, you know, deploying the capital, then sure, maybe that's the most, you know, that's the route you want to go. But if you prize like, hey, we're thinking about not only first order consequences, but second, third order kind of impacts on the community and the long term, you know, this idea of like you're impacting for generations to come. If we're building the capacity of this person or meeting them where they're at or we're doing, you know, I'll just say meeting them where they're at because it's not just building their capacity. It's all sorts of, that's a complex um, statement. So I'll just leave it at that. But if we're meeting them where they're at and we're taking the time to do that properly, there are all sorts of benefits and some of which we may be able to quantify and some of which we may not, but we recognize that they're there and, and have faith that that, that leads to more positive outcomes um, and that we value people <laughs> because they are, to be valued because they, they, they have, you know, worth, uh, I think is, you know, speaks to a lot of that. Um, those things, if it, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong on that, but, um, well, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> sorry, one of the biggest like frustrations I've had in just reading anything about indigenous kind of finance or the economy, um, in my own kind of research in this kind of new role that I'm doing is that so often the focus seems to be on how we can have indigenous peoples fit into the mainstream model. Like how can we help them to succeed in this kind of typical finance model? And it's like, well, actually have you considered adapting the finance model to meet the needs of the community? Maybe that's a bit radical, but like, you know, if you think about it in a mainstream context, it's like, we know if like, if we invest lots of preparation and time and extra money into something, in it up front to be really ready that like the actual delivery part would be easy, but sometimes it's really hard to not just want to jump into the end result. Mm-hmm. It's a little like with coronavirus, like, Oh, how do we get things back to normal? As quickly? Wait, do we want to get back to normal? Maybe we <laughs> want it to look different than maybe we should just stop and think about how we want it to look because you know, normal wasn't so great. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yeah. Um, can you give an example maybe of like, uh, I, 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 how, a, I guess maybe I'll first question is how far along is uh, Indigenous Grand Challenges? Have you funded a lot of innovations and can you give an example maybe of? Yeah, we haven't funded any yet, but we just, okay. so we have, we got our first um, actual pot of funds to do um, 
from seed funding um, just not that long ago. So we're, our first pot of funds came from the Department of Women and Gender Equality, um, formerly the status of women at the federal government to deliver a program to, um, it was initially envisioned for Indigenous women entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs and innovators. Um, I kind of morphed it to advancing equality for Indigenous communities through innovation and social entrepreneurship with a gender lens, because I think it's the gender lens that looks at, you know, who are the decision makers? Who's, who, like, who's the board? Who's the executive, the senior, you know, executive and leadership making decisions on it? Who's the project lead? Who's, who's being hired? As well as who are the end beneficiaries of whatever the innovation is? There's like anything along that spectrum of the gender lens. Um, but we we launched our first call in May. Um, we were largely on like almost completely unknown. Like basically, we had brand new social media channels <laughs> um, on May first, and we launched on May eleventh. And um, I'm like really pleased. So it was open for four weeks. This first window for the expression of interest phase. It was only open for four weeks. Um, we just wanted to hear like who's got a great idea. We want to hear about it. Tell us your idea. Or tell us about the challenge in your community. Tell us what your idea is to solve it. And um, like, how is it different than what's happening? And we got 238 applications from every single province in Canada uh, and every single territory. We got great representation from like across, you know, First Nations, Métis and Inuit folks, urban projects, First Nation on-reserve projects, rural projects, remote northern projects. It was like, I'm so pleased that, that we had this. Now, my problem was we had to shortlist. So we shortlisted to 54 um, really great projects that um, our community reviewers said, these are nearly perfect ideas. Let's get a full application from. Um, like, and broke my heart for the almost 200 that we had to say, you know, it's like, these are amazing ideas. I think they're nearly perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but the communities that so they're not quite ready yet. So we'll work with you. Hold tight. I'm going to work, but come back. I, I don't have that much money in it. It's a $10 million um, match fund contribution agreement from the federal government. So I still need to fundraise for the other 10 million for this initiative. Um, I think that this really, the grand, like the indigenous innovation initiative should be a much, much bigger project, but let's just get our first round um, off the ground. We will be announcing our first round winners, which hoping between five and 10 at the, at the minimum um, number of innovations that we'll be funding. Uh, we'll be announcing those in late September, early October at the latest. Um, and I'm like, I'm 100% convinced just based on seeing the 54 that are going to be applying that they're going to be like amazing um, and awesome. Um, I wanted to get money into the community as quickly as possible because, you know, when COVID hit, as a midwife, as a nurse, as a healthcare provider, I was like, I need to be on the front line with my sisters and my, you know, my frontline colleagues, right? How can I be helping? And um, it was really frustrating to not be there with them. I'm not registered to practice right now. I don't have insurance, so I, I couldn't just go and like even do like a slide shift on the weekend because I don't have the malpractice insurance that comes with being a healthcare provider right. at the time. Um, and so I decided to just focus all my energies here. And I quickly realized that, you know, the economy is going to tank here and eventually it's going to have to recover. And how do we start getting this investment into the community as quickly as possible so that the indigenous community can be even that little bit better positioned to be part of that economic recovery? And how can we just position the community that little bit better to be better in that economic recovery than they would have been otherwise? Right. 
Um, and so what's, do you have like a, so it's, it'll be $20 million then when you raise the kind of the match? And Ultimately, it'll be 20 million with the match, yeah. And so um, this first round, like what do you think the average uh, funding would be per uh, innovation? Yeah, so we've uh, told applicants they can apply for up to 250,000 per per project that's uh yeah that's uh that's very exciting would you be releasing the um like the short list or are you just announcing the winners i'm curious like how can somebody like learn about what's kind of came through and funded (laughs) and all that um listen because we compress this it it is as tightly as we could to get to the point where we could announce um the, you know, the top innovators, we, we missed, totally missed asking consent from the community about whether they wanted us to announce them okay. or not. So um, I don't have permission to announce, but I do have, you know, I am going to be posting um, like basically the map of where we got these 238 projects from because yeah. they're pretty cool. And um, how many kind of people applied is like, it's phenomenal, 238. It, like we were completely unknown in May yeah. and by like mid June, we had 238 people who had applied. I can't even tell you, like, and it was another like 30 applications I think were in draft form that didn't get applied. Plus another, I don't know, 50 people who had registered, but didn't like, I just didn't have time because it was such a short timeline. I just wanted to see like, if you're ready and have some time on your hands and want to apply for this grant. And we wanted to, it to be a substantial enough grant that could, it could have a big impact, but 250,000 to develop and test an idea. It's not an insubstantial amount of money. Like this could actually test a really decent like project that could have a big impact. Um, This is not like the micro loans that, you know, some indigenous entrepreneurs need is like a small micro loan of Um, (laughs) $5,000, Sorry, You know, we're on, we're on zoom folks. I mean, I know you're (laughs) hearing our voice, but I have a, a small medium sized, Person behind me kind of walking in front of David. Um, but yeah, so we, we're working in that kind of space where it's like, we want to show that there's some impactful pieces, but I think that there's going to be lots of different models that is going to emerge from this. And if we can actually fundraise them more than the 20, like the full 20 million, like, I, I, like this is phenomenal. Like, you know, for, I can fund five projects from the 238 right now with what, where I'm at in the funding cycle. Right if I could even fund 10% of those projects, like I'd need like, you know, several more million, but like the potential is there. Yeah. Like there's some really brilliant ideas out there that could have a huge impact. And so I think that we need to start looking at kind of some, some different strategies. Maybe there's more of an open enrollment that needs to be done in, brought in. Maybe there's like a, you know, there's some smaller grant pieces that need to be kind of worked in. How do we support people with like just getting their idea more articulated, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, you know, support them to just be better grant writers, to understand how they to do a budget, to um, to understand how to kind of do more community engagement and kind of get that, you know, those networks together. Um, but there's some really great things. And even amongst this cohort, there's a strong desire for them to all be networked. Um, one of the most inspirational things, and I know I'm talking too much because I'm super excited. No, that's great. Um, but one of the most inspiring things amongst the indigenous uh, entrepreneurs and you know social enterprises that I've you know been connected with over the last year is all of this like co-marketing. I think um, it frequently gets called 
but it's more than that. It's just like lifting each other up and supporting each other and, you know, trading their skills. It's like, well, you, you don't have a graphic designer, but I have a really great one, or I can do some, you know, basic website stuff. Let me help you with that. But I really need some support to get, you know, part of this supply chain is really bugging me and I can't figure out, you know, getting something exported or like they're trading their skills and then they're lifting each other up by co-marketing and co-branding and, um, you know, even just pumping each other. This has nothing to do with my business, but your business is doing, you know, this is a really great thing. So you should, you know, they're just supporting each other so incredibly. And I'm just like, this is social innovation. And their focus is not even about just supporting each other as business people. It's about supporting the community, right? It's like, how do we, how do we, help indigenous youth feel more empowered how do we help you know indigenous um you know women and gender diverse people feel more included this is the kind of innovation that i see within the indigenous context that is so fascinating and exciting to me yeah that's so cool that's uh, how did what do you attribute that success i think the fact that you had two i was one of my questions for you uh, you sort of preempted it but like how did how, how did you get so much awareness and so much, so many responses in such a short period of time? Like it's not, it's not a small feat. Mm-mm. Um, I mean, I think we did a lot of community engagement. We worked with community a lot. I, um, I really wanted the community voice to be reflected in this and I wanted to, to deliver a program that was responsive to their needs. So we developed a community reference group that I just keep going back to, to say like, you know, how else can this be better? How else can, can this be better? What are the biggest problems that you have with the typical mainstream and how can we make it better? And so having that community engagement meant that it was a program that was more responsive um, using plain language, right? We don't have to use big fancy terms um, all the time. Like if we just say what we're trying to say, mm-hmm. then people will hear it better. Um, but I think that the biggest reason we were so successful is nothing to do with me. It's just because there's a lot of great ideas out there and there isn't the infrastructure to support it. Yeah. It's meeting a demand that there's clearly exists, right? Yep. Like, yeah. That's amazing. Um, so it's just in the interest of, of, of time. I want to be respectful. Um, uh, maybe wrap up with a couple questions here. Um, could you maybe um, elaborate a little bit on, I've got two final questions. Can you elaborate a little bit on, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, this isn't just about throwing a bunch of capital at them. What do you see either kind of immediately or, or kind of vision for the longer term, if it's going to take some time to kind of build that capacity or capacity to be able to deliver? What are some of those ways in which you're going to kind of be meeting uh, the innovators where they are beyond just sort of the, the grant allocation? Yeah. Um, so building in more of the, the capacity supports. And so we're working uh, with some new partners to tweak and evolve, like how can we actually support them where they're at and on a journey that's culturally safe, culturally specific and relevant to the context gets what their needs are, right? And they're really diverse. An urban indigenous person doing a business, start, you know, starting a brand new business is going to have very different needs than a First Nation on reserve that has different tax kind of um, things or, you know, to con- you know, different tax considerations. Um, so we're being able to meet people where they're at, but yeah. So trying to t- be innovative around the capacity building supports. Um, and then and just to, to sorry interrupt you, but, but might that look like, so instead of, Hey, here's a bunch of the, the first cohort to receive grants, we're going to bring them all into a, a training session in Toronto run by somebody who's not from an indigenous community talking about marketing. 
it's going to yeah. be potentially like a, a mentor or a trainer from an indigenous background, meeting them in their kind of communities to work with them there. Is that like... Yes. So absolutely. And of course, within COVID, it'll be the bit sure. more virtual, but yeah, providing them mentorship, providing them like the kind of the tangible kind of mainstream supports they need, whether it's marketing or finance or, um, you know, supply chain or whatever it is that they kind of need support with and linking them into that education piece delivered by indigenous peoples, right? Yeah. We actually are out there. Yeah. Um, the, the educators are there. We just need to kind of leverage them and support yeah. them to, to do that. Um, and then doing yeah, more kind of one-on-one support and community-based support. We're also trying to build like a champions program, a regional champions program where we have more people within the community who we, we support to go out and find more innovators, to tell people that what they're doing is innovative, right? People don't even realize that they're being innovative until someone tells them like, hey, do you know that this is actually, you know, no one else is doing this. This is pretty cool. So having more regional champions to go out and uh, and tell people and then support them to apply through the program, right? So to support them in that journey of application, applying and being successful in it. Um, I think more of the impact measurement stuff, because I know that you need data to be able to get more interest in what you're doing. So we're actually doing a, an, you know, and developing our own indigenous impact framework um, for the for the program and so that works happening right now and of course we've networked with a lot of the other people who are working around um, impact measurement but largely around indigenous impact measurement come right. see our, our our presentation at socap um but then also i think the bigger you're, piece you're doing a presentation at socap on that yeah oh, are you oh okay yeah. great um in in collaboration with um with raven capital partners awesome yeah they have a new indigenous impact measurement framework um, which i haven't seen yet um we're also the the presentation will be with the Indigenous Women Lead Group um, in the United States um, who have done some work on this. And then there's some folks in Australia who've done some work on it. Oh, so this is amazing. So I'm, I would love to, um, A, I'm going to attend the SOCAP at all, listen to that one. And then uh, I'd love to potentially get a podcast topic on that specifically. I think it'd be fascinating to dive deep into that. So that's a big chunk of work we're doing right now is um, making sure that that's community informed and it's based on what are the community's priorities and community's definitions of, of impact. Um, and then I think the bigger piece for me is really looking at it from a system level piece, right? So, um, you know, my, again, my own personal research and networking to integrate into this space um, has been one where there's a lot of people holding their cards really close to their chest and um, a lot of kind of uh, talking about like all of these cool initiatives that are happening, uh, in particular for like indigenous economic development, not a lot of happening around innovation for indigenous specifically, um, but just even the indigenous economic development space, there's a lot of kind of distinct things happening, but not a lot of discussions amongst each other. And so I've actually kind of pitched to the funder like, to convene us together, to convene a bunch of people, especially within the Indigenous um, women and gender diverse and two-spirit folks. Um, there's a lot of kind of specific initiatives there. And I said, let's like actually bring us all together because I think we're all being given funding to do the same kind of gap that hmm. the government saw, but different departments saw this kind of gap around capital, maybe some capacity. But it's like, what part of the capacity are each of us working on so that, you know, it's not just everyone doing the same thing and we're competing with each other, but we can actually start looking at where are the gaps. So I, I, I would love to see a systems map with all of the, you know, kind of the indigenous leaders within this space 
to get together and start actually mapping out what we have. And then we can start seeing where the gaps are. And then we can start redeploying the resources that we have, which are really like limited. So even though you hear lots of all these great announcements, but all these big amounts of money, it's actually still relatively small compared to what the need is, let alone even what the proportion of the population is. Yeah. Um, and so if we can actually start mapping those things out, redeploy resources and actually start working together to support the community along a journey of entrepreneurship from innovation to successful business that's also a social enterprise supporting the community. Like, wouldn't that be so much better? So I kind of tend to want to attack it from lots of angles. That's amazing. Yeah, no, I I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a really smart way to kind of look at it and go about it. Um, So just a final question. If people want to support the work that you're doing, whether that's, you know, know, donations and or like, what are you looking for and what types of, people or organizations should be getting in touch if they like what you're doing? Um, Well, we haven't quite set up um, the foundation yet, but that's actually a work in progress. We have got a a foundation that's connected to us that um, we're working on. We haven't figured out a way or we haven't started working on um, a a process of small donations, but if there's anyone that wants to look at how they can support the the match funds, right? This is two to one. already going to be a cool and we've already started so we know that there's going to be things to invest in Um, but if if anyone's looking to kind of form a partnership then uh, I'm open to a conversation you can reach out to me you can find me on LinkedIn on Twitter Um, you can find the Indigenous Innovation Initiative on any of those handles and um, And all that stuff will be in the show notes and looking so looking for those kind of early stage investors who want to say who can see that, that there's a huge potential in this getting Investing in people at the innovation stage means that you're going to be able to one to support people through a whole community, like through a whole journey. Um, but also, wouldn't you want to be at the kind of at the forefront of that and saying that you're you were there at the beginning of it? I think that there's so much potential, and we know that the indigenous, you know, economic ecosystem. We're we're working towards that hundred billion dollar indigenous economy, right? Like, yeah. it, like it's only thirty million right now, but we're working towards that hundred million or hundred billion, like it's, and it's maybe even going to be bigger. So, um, good opportunity to get in on the ground, great opportunity to get in early. hundred percent. That's amazing. Well, listen, Sarah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share with us what you're working on and the opportunity and all the exciting plans you've got. Uh, it's been really, uh, really interesting. I will leave. I'm glad you think so. I hope your listeners enjoyed it as well. I'd be surprised if if they didn't. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I'm going to leave a bunch of kind of the links and uh, contact information in the show notes. So if anybody's interested in learning more and getting in touch with Sarah, um, yeah, check out the show notes to the the podcast. And uh, we'll have to, again, do the an impact uh, kind of indigenous impact measurement and management uh, discussion at some point. I'd love to circle back on that. Yes, absolutely. Me too. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, David. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.